You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Now, in the bed next to her on this Christmas Eve, her body retained that effect upon me. When I lay beside her, it was as if I were meant to be there, as if my body had rested against hers thousands of times before. So it felt as if I were lying not next to a person, but next to the memory of a person, while at the same time that memory was undergoing a transformation into something even less material. Her body was all too human in its ravagedness, but it also struck me as an entity becoming ghost, as if in her thinness she were slipping into something less than solid. I ran my finger across her bumpy ribs and traced the gaunt hill of the pelvic bone that overlooked her stomach. Her body, whose flesh and memory had always confused and excited, still felt as if it belonged to me, but also as if it were disappearing. It was not only that she was losing substance as she worked, it was as if she were working to lose substance, as if it were not only the gargoyles that were backwards art, but also the artist herself, progressing to a state in which they were both less and more than the material from which they had started. So this is how her body, flesh, memory, and ghost, disarmed me. I woke. I woke after I finally fell into a short and fitful sleep, before she did. I brought her eggs on a tray and worked up the courage to give her that year's gift. Again, it was writing, as I apparently had not learned my lesson from the previous year's poems. I had written from memory the stories she had told me about her four ghostly friends. The good iron worker. The woman on the cliff. The glass blower's apprentice and Sigurd's gift, and bound them between covers. On the front was the title, The Lover's Tales, as told by Marianne Engel. It's the perfect gift, not only for me, but also for Sigurd. For a Viking, the worst tale is to be forgotten. She took my hand in hers and apologized. Her intense carving over the previous weeks had taken her over completely, and, as a result, she had neglected to get me a proper gift. But, she suggested, how about I explain what Sister Constantia meant when she said I had desecrated the scriptorium? Andrew Davidson has worked as a teacher of English in Japan and wrote English lessons for Japanese websites. His first novel is The Gargoyle. Thank you for joining me, Andrew. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, this book is a lot about storytelling. Right. And did you know it was going to be about storytelling? And you talked about when your other phases of writing, mm-hmm. you were trying to imitate various writers. Who did you think you were trying to imitate when you started this book? Was it was there anybody specific or was it more than one writer? Actually, in, at the start of this book, I wasn't imitating anybody. I was, I was listening to this character of Marianne uh, speak, speak to me. She was I'd mentioned earlier that rarely am I inspired, but in this case, I was. This character of Marianne came to me and said, okay, here I am and you're going to listen to me. And it was 
beginning this book was really just taking what she was saying to me and writing it down because I, she wasn't going to leave me alone if I didn't. Wait, she was a sculptress then? Yeah. And, and making, and in the novel, she, she, she sculpts gargoyles. Right. And, and was that true as well from the beginning? It's a good question. Um, I don't remember her ever being anything else. So on the first day, she may not have been a sculptress, but I think she was from the first time I asked myself, what does she do? Tell, tell me a little bit about your your writing day. Mm-hmm. Um, how many words do you write? What do you set out to do when you sit down to write in any given day? I, I don't have a schedule. I don't have a, a word count that I need to, to reach. Um, it is about sitting down and putting in the time. And often, often I won't write a single sentence. And when that happens, uh, I realize, okay, I'm here for the time. I'll go do the research and I'll go through an encyclopedia of medieval German life and, you know, uh, find what I, what I need for when I, I know it's coming. I know I need to know it. So it's a matter of putting in the time and it's, it's not always about putting the words on the page. This book has a lot of uh, very historical aspects, and I want to talk about writing writing historical fiction because you cover a lot of different periods, and there's a lot of really great little stories and and great big stories in there. Um, when you're writing historical fiction, mm-hmm. you this the I, I I have to admit this is a book that as I started reading it and started reading about Ingenthal, I the about I read about ten pages ago. Either this is guys made this completely up because right. I didn't know anything about it or he's done some research and I went and saw it not only did you, had you done your research you done a damn good job of your research could you talk about fitting your story into the larger story of history right and it's an interesting balance that the thing to remember is that the, the gargoyle is a work of fiction so not everything is bang on perfectly exactly correct but I always tried to know where I was changing things a little bit. Uh, for example, Engelthal the Monastery did exist, and almost every character who is mentioned in the book, Sister Christina, Sister Gertrude, um, they were there at the time, and there is some historical reference, but I don't know what they look like, and I don't know what their exact jobs are in the in the uh, the monastery, and, and a lot of that I, I have to fill in and uh, suit it to my own purpose. Um, and I think that that's fine because, because it's a story. And, and let's talk a little bit about stories. There's the, this book has so many stories woven into it. Um, could you talk about create, creating those stories, pacing those stories, and some of them get told in one whole lump. Right. Others get broken up. There's a, the main narrative gets broken up over most of the novel. Right. Could you talk about doing that? I mean, it seems, Mike, it must have been kind of mind-boggling for you to have be in the middle of 14th century Germany and then go to 17th century Italy or, you know, 9th century uh, Vikings. Uh, wh- how did you manage that? With a lot of shuffling. Um, it is a very, very delicate balance to, to make that work. 
And I mean, there's kind of a trick uh, to this as well, as if you're the, the, the medieval German story is told over a number of parts. And when you leave it, uh, hopefully you leave it with something that is interesting or that the, the reader's curious about, maybe a little bit of a cliffhanger so that they hold on to that and want to come back to it. Um, because with this recurring story that occurs over uh, a number of different sections, um, you want to keep the reader interested in coming back to it. The single lumped stories that you're talking about, say with the, the Icelandic story, this is one that needs to exist by itself. And it's, it's as I work on it, that becomes completely evident. Now, uh, so you were sitting there some some day, night, staring at your blank computer screen saying, what the heck am I going to write? I think I'll research ninth century Iceland. Is it, did that happen? Is that how that worked out for you? Or? Oh, no, there's always, there's always little things that push you in the direction. Um, in, in the case of... Um, Iceland and the Vikings, well, um, this is my ethnic heritage. My, my mother's Icelandic. I come from Manitoba, which has a huge Icelandic uh, community. And in fact, there's more Icelanders living in Manitoba than anywhere in the world except Iceland. So it's not a matter of this, you know, jumping into my head and saying, Vikings! It's something I've been carrying around all, all my life. I've just wanted to write a story about about Vikings, because I wanted to learn a little bit more about my my own past. As you were, were writing this in all these little lumps, and you're writing a novel. You you know you're writing a novel, and you know right. it's a lot, going to be a long and pretty complicated novel, right? I, well, I'm discovering that in the process <laughs> of writing it. You, you, did, you, did you ever think that maybe this might be 200 pages, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am? When I was, when I was starting it, it could have been that. I really had no idea. When you were writing this, did you think, well, I'm, I want to write something that's going to be published? Did you, did you have intentions to publish this, or was this another piece of work that you were writing just for the pleasure of writing and researching? Um, to be honest, I, I think every writer, if, they, if, if I were to sit across here and say, I never dreamed of being published, I, I would just be a big fat liar. I mean, we all, we all hold on to that. But this was never the intent. This was, like, I mean, I never viewed publication as the reward at the end of the process. I never viewed it as the thing that needed to be achieved to be successful or to want to continue doing it. If, if I hadn't been picked for publication, I'd still be writing for my three hours tonight. I've always done it because it's enjoyable, because it entertains me, because I like doing it, because I need to, because I want to learn because occasionally I have voices in my head that I have to serve. Like, publication is great, and the great reward of it now is that other people get to read my story, and now I can be a professional writer without needing to have another job. But I always wrote because I liked writing. One of the works that informs this, of course, is Dante's Inferno. Right. You know, It's good. I'm going to push all of your your listeners, to, to read it. If you haven't read it, go read it now. It's a wonderful book. It's also a, a, a classic of world literature. Mm -hmm. And you go pretty far in, in re, reworking it in this novel. Um, that's kind of audacious. How did you feel taking on the Inferno? I mean, that's Dante. Well, 
I felt fine with it because, as I've mentioned, when I write, I write to entertain myself, and and I like Dante, and I like Dante's Inferno, and it, it's gripping, th- thrilling writing. And as I'm writing, all I can think is, wow, I'm, I'm enjoying doing this. Um, there's never really a matter of, you know, is it audacious or is it okay to do this? It's, is this entertaining me? And the answer was always yes. Uh, let's talk a little bit uh, uh, about the narrator. Mm-hmm. He, he's unnamed. Unnamed, yes. He has no father, and his right. mother has died in birth. So he's really uh, set adrift in this world. Was this uh, your purpose? And Because he came after Marianne, right? Yes. He was create. I mean, in the creation process for you as a writer, the narrator of the book was not the first person you thought of. The narrator um, came into existence as a way of serving the story that Marianne was going to tell. I needed somebody to be able to listen to the story she's telling and write it down because I knew from the very beginning that she wasn't going to be the one writing down the story. And this leads you to some really interesting storytelling techniques. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the the various ways you unfold stories in here is I found really fascinating, because you have a a, a way of, and the the language uh, gradations are really subtle, but we can always tell in the voice when we're going from hearing something when the narrator is just telling us about what's happening to him. Right, in his own voice. In his own voice. And then when he just starts to tell something in somebody else's voice or even tell a story himself, could you talk about assuming that storytelling voice? This was really difficult and took a lot of work for me because, okay, uh, for example, we've got the narrator who's writing down the story. And a great deal of the story that he's writing down is the story that Marianne Engel is telling him. And it's a story that she's telling him that supposedly occurred 700 years ago, but she's telling it in the present. So there's... The narrator says, I'm going to try and tell it in the my best approximation of the voice that Marianne Engel used. But from a technical standpoint, a writing standpoint... I also want to reflect a little bit of the narrator's voice creeping in into the retelling of this story, because that's inevitable. It's being filtered through him, but still make it recognizable as Marianne Engel telling the story. But then I still have to think about whether she's speaking with the voice that she has now in the present or the voice that she would have 700 years ago when the story is occurring because they're not going to be exactly the same voice. So this took a lot of rewriting and balance and and hopefully it works. When you were writing this, were you showing parts of this to anybody else? Not really. You you spent 7 years in in a, in a monk monastic uh, cell yourself uh, uh, of your own uh, fictional design? Well, I did show um a very early version to some of my friends. And this was um, a, less than a year or, or maybe around a year after I'd started working on it. So it had none of the medieval uh, stuff in at all. Uh, it was just the modern day story. And and I realized at that point it was a mistake to go out and, and show this to my friends, not because my friends were cruel or there was any real problem with it, but it was just, I went out too early with it. It just wasn't ready. And then I worked on it for another three or four years before I showed it to anybody else. And 
at that point, I, I knew it was too long, but I, I was so far inside of it, I didn't know what to take out at that point. There's a lot of parallels, I think, between the story you tell and, and your own story writing this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it seems like this is in many. This book is in many ways kind of a, a, a transmogrification of your own writing process into the sculpting process that Marianne Engel undergoes. But she would uh, work for uh, three or four straight days until she collapses, and that's never my experience. But I do. I do understand what you're saying. Could Could you talk about that kind of um, this idea of? pulling stuff out mm-hmm. uh, of making that big 3D um, model in your mind and pulling stuff out. How did you know what to pull out and, and what and how did your research as you went along influence what you pulled out? Hmm. You know, that's it's a very good question because there's not always an easy answer to that. Um, basically, I would try and pull out when I got to the point that I was really cutting it down, um, so I did the big rain cloud that you talk about, and then I got it down to about 195,000 words, and I still needed to take out a great deal because I knew it was too much. At that point, I tried to pull out everything that that I could that didn't move the plot forward. And what I find is that if I pull something out and it stays out, I don't think about it, then it, it's good. It, it was meant to be gone. But if I throw it back in and then take it out again, but then it says, no, I'm going back in, it's usually those things that just refuse to be thrown out. But you have to be careful doing this because you can, you can fall in love with your own writing more than using it to serve the story. And, and it can be harsh to cut out things that you really like that you look at and say, well, no, I worked so hard on that sentence, and I love it. And it takes a certain discipline to saying, yeah, maybe you love it, but it doesn't work. You talk about love. This novel is uh, a long and many, it's actually not one long, it's many different uh, love stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you talk about, were were you yourself falling in and out of love in, in this while this book happened, I mean, was there any kind of correlation with your personal life? Well, I, you know, I, I've been around just as you have, and I've had a certain number of relationships, but this really isn't the story of, of my life at all. Uh, this is the story of these characters and what happens to them, and I, I worked on the characters, and one of the questions that I always ask myself when developing characters is, who do they love and why do they love this person and what happened in that relationship? Because this gives you a real sense of who somebody is. I mean, if you know who somebody loves, you know who that person is. One thing we find in this book is that art, the creation of art and the experience of of madness, it's difficult to tell between the two. Mm Mm-hmm. I, but I'm completely sane. <laughs> well, that's what you're telling me now. Uh, I haven't talked to you between uh, 12 midnight and 2 <laughs> in the morning when you were writing. Um, could you talk about uh, the kind of research you must have done into schizophrenia and, and, and uh, manic depression? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and did you 
talk to anybody who had experienced these yourself, and, and you talk about hearing voices yourself. I mean, did you wonder, well, how close am I to that? Honestly, I'm not close. At least I'm telling myself I'm not close, but I'm sure that that's the way it is for for anybody. Um, I, I do know some people who have bipolar disorder, but I think that this is inevitable. I mean, I think that there's enough people in the 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 populace that, that experience this condition that everybody must know somebody. And if, um, but they're not a part of my, my research process. For me, the research really comes from reading and reading and reading and then reading personal accounts. And um, I'm very much somebody who likes to go into books to get my understanding. And, and that actually happens in, in this book. There's a great image of the um, Dante's Inferno with an arrow buried into it. And, mm-hmm. and your character suggests that, that that's a, a way to get to the heart of the book. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about uh, yourself getting to, to the heart of these books? When, when you're doing this research, are you taking notes? Are you Oh, constantly. And do you, do you refer to these notes when you're writing? Yes, absolutely. I, in fact, what, what I tend to do when I'm researching is I'll read through the book. I'll find the relevant passages. I will, for my own uh, note-taking process, I'll type out the passage exactly as it's written in the book. And then I will put that aside, and I will take the idea of the passage. And then I'll put that aside, and then I'll take the, you know, the actual relevant information, um, the age at which schizophrenia most commonly manifests and, and work this into the actual book itself. But for me, the research process is going through the same information over and over and over until it really embeds itself inside my mind and becomes a part of me, and it's very, it becomes clear what I need to use in the book. Uh, with a book this large and covering this much uh, ground, how did you know when you were done? Uh, my editor told me. <laughs> this is not your inner editor, I try. <laughs> no. Um, this is actually one of the biggest challenges, is, is letting go of a work that you've lived with for so long. And uh, honestly, I'd been working on it so long that I really did reach a point that I was absolutely happy with every sentence in the book, and, and nobody had to wrestle it away to me. I was happy to hand it over and say, it's finished. But it's just a matter of, for me, going over it and over it and over it and over it until until I run out of things to change. So you're you're a guy, you're, you're living in Japan, you're writing English translations for websites, and in your spare time, you, you're a novelist, and you've got a million words that you've managed to, to salt down to some, you know, a couple hundred thousand or something. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you uh, get those words into the hands of somebody who could read them? I went the traditional route. I researched agents. I, and again, as a part of my love of research, I tried to really get to the heart of the agents to figure out, okay, this is who they are, and this is who they represent, and this is what they might want to represent in the future. And here's how I'm going to personalize my query letter to this agent. And basically, I, I started from the 
the top, the people that I would most like to work with, and made a list from the top down and started sending out query letters. And I was very fortunate that one of the people that um, that I most wanted to work with responded quite quickly. Yeah, you got an agent, and he you sent him your whole when you what did you send him? Uh, at first, I sent him a query letter, and he was interested in the the query letter. Uh, I actually sent him of uh, ten reasons not to represent my novel, and I wrote it in the voice of the narrator. And this interested him enough to come back and say, "Okay, this I like this query letter. Will you send me the manuscript?" Then I sent him the whole manuscript, which at that point was far too long, and I knew it was far too long. And he got back to me and said really like this writing. This is too long. Thanks for submitting. But I wasn't going to let it go, so I went back to him and I said, you didn't say, don't resubmit. And I asked him if I could edit it and get him back a uh, a shorter version. And he said yes. Did he like your first shorter version? He did. Uh, it came to him. I actually printed a one-off version of the, the book, basically a galley. Um, at the back of the book, I wrote... Uh, quotes from his our original email correspondence where he talked about liking my writing. On the front of it, I had the title, and it was manuscript submission for uh, this particular person. It was very personalized, and, and I think he was quite pleased with it. Uh, so he took your second submission, and at that point, he agreed to represent you. That's correct. Now, was that is that what we see here? Since then, I've gone through... Uh, the process of working with three English language editors. Uh, the first edit was done with a wonderful woman named Anne Collins at Random House Canada, and it, the Canadian publishing deal came first for me. Uh, later, the book was sold to Doubleday in America and Canongate Books in the UK, and I worked with editors at both of those houses as well. Um, in America, Jerry Howard, and in the UK, Anya Sirota, and they were it's very interesting working with three editors. They all bring different skills and viewpoints to the table. And they're very good at what they do. And it behooves me to listen to all of their advice. So there are essentially three different, slightly different versions of this book out there, the Canadian, the U.S., and the uh, British? There is only one version of the book. They are identical. But I worked with the three editors on that single version of the book. Did the editors talk to one another? I believe that they did a little bit, um, but most of it came to me, and I gathered all their comments in a, a master manuscript, uh, as, it, as it were. And for the most part, they, they weren't in conflict. And if there were different opinions, I would, I would go to them and say, okay, here's the different opinions. And given this information, uh, what do you think? And ultimately, it, it always came down to me. It's my final decision. Um, but as I say, these are smart people. They know what they're doing. They're very, very good at what they're doing. And even if I didn't disagree, or even if I didn't agree with exactly what they're saying, I could look at it and go, all right, no, I do see that point. Now, your agent sold this book to, to Doubleday Canada, and this is reputed to be one of the, the biggest advances, I think, uh, almost ever in Canadian history. Is, is that correct? Uh, actually, it was. Uh, all these companies are related, and they're, they're the corporate 
It's uh, one structure. But, um, oh, in, in Canada, it's uh, actually Random House Canada. Mm-hmm. And then there's um, <clears throat> Doubleday is the American publisher of it. Well, I, could you talk about going from somebody who's been, uh, you know, uh, has a somewhat anonymous job translating uh, for websites? I, I was never actually a translator, oh. if I can just point oh, that out. Sure. I was writing English lessons. Oh. Uh, my Japanese is nowhere near good enough to do translations into or from that language. Well, uh, going from a, a somewhat anonymous job to being mm-hmm. uh, uh, essentially a publishing phenomenon, tell, tell me about how that felt and how, how that unfolded for you in, in one day, over a week, a month, a year? No, it's all, it's all a process. I mean, um, first of all, there's the, the, at that point, the six years I've been working on the novel. And then there's the months that I put together in the research of agents and putting together query letters. And then there's the first bit of interest from the man who would take me on eventually and re-editing the entire book. And that took six to eight months. And then there's that resubmission process to him. And then there's that call where he says, I'll, I'll take you on, which is an enormous moment for me because I knew, okay, this man is very good at what he does. I've just passed the first hurdle. I'm feeling very good about my chances of being published somewhere. And then uh, a month or two months later, there's the Canadian publishing deal. And then five months after that, there's the American and and uh, worldwide publishing deals. And so it's it's not a moment of, you know, go to sleep one night, you wake up the next morning and everything's different. I've got to presume that having finished this book and having had the kind of reception that you have, um, that you're, have you started something new? I have been uh, working on the, the next project. Uh, it's all research, and as you know from reading this book, the research is a big part of it. And I've got hundreds and hundreds of notes of research and no real idea what the story is going to be. Well, what are you? tell us what you're researching. Oh, you know, the same old stuff. Love, religion, sex, death. <laughs> you know, when I was reading this book, one thing that struck me, and it interested me too, that you had talked about writing movie scripts. Or so. I read this book and I thought, well, this is a wonderful book, but it's a wonderful reading experience. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't seem like something that would necessarily translate particularly easy into a movie. It's hard to say. It's I think it's such a visual book, mm-hmm. but maybe, maybe uh, too much so budget-wise. You'd have to go to half the countries of the world and then go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm sure we, we can find hell here somewhere amidst all our uh, digital uh, uh, effects. Has there been a, a, a movie deal based on this? No, there's... Uh, there's, it isn't a movie deal, and anything I might say on that would be complete speculation. So, One, uh, one thing I, I have to ask about, because this seems to be kind of in the air, y- your main character's a, a, a pornographer. Right. What made was, you, yeah. Was. Uh, what made you choose that? Because we've seen, I mean, recently there's a book, Beautiful Children, which involved a lot of the professional pornography business. Chuck Polinick's latest book involves professional uh, pornography business. Mm-hmm. What made you choose that career for this narrator? I'm very interested in exploring um, both sides or 
hopefully there's more than just two sides to any issue. This is um, a book, I think, that explores the world of the body and of the spirit. And I think that this was an appropriate profession to have him in at the beginning that dealt with the body because he talks about the experience that this wasn't this wasn't fulfilling for him. It wasn't some realization of a fantasy. It was for him it was a relatively empty experience to use his body almost mechanically for sex in, in these films. So it wasn't a matter of deciding that I wanted to go that way because it was graphic or titillating. From the standpoint of being able to explore the issues that I wanted to to deal with, the, the thoughts, the philosophies, and not that any book really should be about those things. A, a book should just be a story that entertains you. But there's elements of this, and it worked very well for for allowing me to, to get inside those. And, and it, it really is an entertaining book. I've been speaking with Andrew Davidson. His first novel is The Gargoyle. Thank you for speaking with me, Andrew. Oh, thank you. Now my armor had melted away and been replaced with a raw wound. The line of beauty that I had used to separate myself from people was gone, replaced by a new barrier, ugliness, that kept people away from me, whether I liked it or not. One might expect the result to be the same, but that was not entirely true. While I was now surrounded by far fewer people than before, they were far better people. When my former acquaintances took a quick glance at me in the burn ward before turning around to walk out, they left the door open for Marianne Engel, Nan Edwards, Gregor Natchik, and Sayuri Mizumoto. What an unexpected reversal of fate. Only after my skin was burned away did I finally become able to feel. Only after I was born into physical repulsiveness did I come to glimpse the possibilities of the heart. I accepted this atrocious face and abominable body because they were forcing me to overcome the limitations of who I am, while my previous body allowed me to hide them. I am not a hero in soul, and never will be. But I am better than I was. Or so I tell myself. And for now, that is enough. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.